You've heard me talk about my preferred fish oil brand, Vital Nutrients, offering a line of 11 ultra-pure omega-3 solutions, including an innovative, high-performance vegan omega option. But Vital Nutrients innovations don't end there. They've also developed BCQ, a powerful herbal and proteolytic formula that supports a healthy inflammatory response. The nutrients in this distinctive formula also support gastrointestinal function and help maintain healthy connective tissue. BCQ combines boswellia and curcumin with quercetin, a potent flavonoid, and bromelain, a proteolytic enzyme for a healthy inflammatory response in joints, sinus, and the digestive tract. For more information and to order, go to vitalnutrients.co. That's vitalnutrients.co. Vital Nutrients has been known for nearly 30 years for their clean and innovative formulations, utilizing peer-reviewed research, bioavailable, and bioactive ingredients in therapeutic doses. I take them and use them in my practice. Just go to vitalnutrients.co and check them out. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and the object of today's podcast is to end your carb confusion. That's the title of a book by today's guest. He's Dr. Eric Westman, who is the co-author, along with Amy Berger, of uh, a wonderful book that uh, really addresses an important theme, which is uh, how should we transition to a low-carb diet, uh, easier said than done, and that book addresses that question head-on. Uh, Dr. Westman uh, is an internal medicine physician. He's an MD, uh, a medical weight management specialist, and a primary care doctor, uh, and you're still affiliated with uh, Duke Medical Center uh, in Durham, North Carolina, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay, and... Uh, he is uh, an advocate of low-carb dieting. Uh, and so I, I wanted to, first of all, welcome uh, Dr. Westman. It's a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, I wanted to, to start out by uh, asking you how you got involved personally in advocating this type of diet. Coming as you did uh, as a young physician at uh, Duke Medical School, uh, Duke at the time was famous for something called the rice diet. People uh, came there from all parts of the country and from around the world uh, to lose weight uh, according to the dietary paradigm uh, that had been prevalent there for decades uh, under the auspices of Dr. Walter Kempner. Uh, he developed uh, the rice diet, which is a starchy diet, a very low-fat diet, and that was the prevailing paradigm. So you, you kind of went against the grain by embracing, uh, among uh, other role models, uh, Dr. Atkins' approach to it. Uh, I believe you may have been the first academically-based physician uh, who acknowledged uh you know, his his renegade proposition that, uh, no, it's not fat that we need to restrict, but it's carbohydrates. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I think we're going to find out there are a lot of circles and uh, things come around and we revisit old things. And, and uh, but you're right. That, so I came to Duke University in 1990 as a, a uh, 
trainee in clinical research, internal medicine specialist, and learned evidence-based medicine with learning how to do clinical trials. And I was curious about Dr. Kempner. I heard the name. And, and back then, the rice diet actually existed. People came to town to Durham, North Carolina, to do the uh, low, ultra-low-fat kind of program, uh, the Kempner diet or rice diet at Duke was very similar to the Pritikin diet or the Ornish diet, which were ultra low fat kinds of things. And you know, I remember seeing the flow sheets that Dr. Kempner had actually in the wards at Duke Hospital from years before. I mean, the, you couldn't put people in the hospital in the 90s, but there was an outpatient clinical program. And um, you know, I guess so. Duke had, had always been open to and and knowledgeable about weight loss and that there are many different ways to do it you know we have a surgical program and and uh, i really didn't know much about nutrition and weight loss like most internists back then and even today and so in 1998 when two of my patients came to me in a clinical practice at the va hospital in durham they had lost weight by doing this, you know, what's called the Atkins induction diet, I didn't know anything about it. I, I was curious, and one of the, the gentlemen looked at me and said, you're, you're so young, this diet was out before you were born. And, mm-hmm. well, it was close. It wasn't really true, but it was close. And so I, I was kind of well, it, It's based on the, the Banting uh, paradigm that was actually from, uh, well, you know, the 19th century. Yeah, and you know, uh, I learned later that Dr. Atkins read about it in a, in a scientific journal. So actually, he thought that he was just doing what the scientists had already signed off on. When it really, it they you know, it was a, a couple papers, but you know, so Atkins, Dr. Atkins thought he was following the research. When by the time I was getting into this, yeah, I was a lone academic looking at this uh, really out of curiosity and and pretty much ignorance about nutrition but it clearly worked and and you know I, so I wrote Dr. Atkins a letter he called me back you know he's up there you know we're in New York City midtown Manhattan had a big practice and um he invited me up to his office to look at what they were doing cuz mm-hmm. he appropriately um, kind of judge that there was a stalemate. You know, I was saying, where's the data? And he's saying, it's all in my book. And I said, mm-hmm. well, your book isn't science. And, mm-hmm. you know, so he offered, well, why don't you come visit my practice? Well, and so it, I it sounds like a, like a very uh, uh, fruitful collaboration because you, on the one hand, uh, were, you were trained academically. Uh, he, on the other hand, was a, a maverick. You know, he had no standing in the uh, scientific or academic community, uh, but he was treating patients left and right, and they were getting better. But it was all thought to yeah. be anecdotal. It wasn't subject to any kind of rigorous uh, study, you know, double-blind, placebo-controlled, whatever, whatever. But you actually had that methodology at your disposal and could employ it in studying this. Right. And, and um, I think I was at a stage of my career where I was looking at things. I, you know, I was doing clinical trials for smoking cessation with the nicotine patch. And this is even before uh, Chantix. And, uh, and uh, I got to work with some really fertile minds uh, at Duke uh, who were researchers and, and um, you know, learned the, the old saying that to create the future, you know, you do research. 
you know, if you're going to get into new areas that are really going to be replicable, replicable, <laughs> um, to use the scientific method and you'll be, you know, finding things that are going to be changing the future. Uh, so, right. Well, <laughs> years later, uh, Jackie Eberstein, who worked with Dr. Atkins said, um, Dr. Atkins came skipping down the hall one day and said, you'll never, you never believe what happened. You know, Jackie says, what? And this doctor from Duke called <laughs> and, you know, Duke, they want to come study what we're doing. So that was me at the other end, so, you know, kind of curious and, and putting my toe in the water. And, uh, you know, I, but I went into it really kind of eyes wide open and not knowing really what we would find. And, it, you know, now uh, w one step leads to another. I asked Dr. Atkins for research money to take back to North mm -hmm. Carolina, and we did the first studies, and then they created a foundation. Um, and then, sadly, Dr. Atkins dies right in the middle of our second study. Um, he slips on the ice in New York City and, and dies um, within a week or so. And, mm -hmm. you know, I... I um, did a couple studies then with the Atkins Foundation. Right. But then Veronica it, Atkins, uh, his uh, widow, became a big proponent of the research that she then uh, undertook to, to validate the work of her uh, late yes. husband. Yeah, she really believed and, you know, saw, of course, what it could do and, and really stood behind Dr. Atkins' work, was really, which was really nice. Um, but, you know, the, the foundation uh, was unable to, you know, muster the research that something like NIH can or, or drug companies and all that. So it's really still Private relegated research. to sort of an orphan, yeah. orphan area of research. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but, but there's been a lot of research since that time. <laughs> indeed. Absolutely. And it, it really has become, uh, you know, all the rage. And it, it has, I think, uh, partly due to Dr. Atkins, the popularity of his diet, partly due to, you know, your nascent research, but partly due to just it just built momentum and now it's become all the rage and you know so many people are onto the bandwagon of, of low carb dieting uh so uh in your book uh, you know you start the book by t telling us why the current approach to diet and health is failing you know what that's the central proposition here is that you know we're the, the paradigm has been wrong and you know, it seemingly made sense because low fat, you know, no fat shall reach your lips, no fat shall reach your hips, that whole notion. Uh, but that um, seemed to be working out very well. Right. Well, you know, as I got into this, I, I was able to, as an academic, meet with other academics who, and I learned from a lot of different people, um, including the nutritionists who advised the U.S. government and other people on what to do for obesity. And they, they were not, um, they didn't have to do clinical trials to advise, you know, and this is one of the things you have to understand is that governmental guidelines don't need any evidence behind them. They, they need, they don't need clinical trial evidence like a physician would want or, or a, you know, healthcare system would want. And I remember meeting a few of the folks who said, well, we, we advised that you would just lower the fat in the diet because there are more calories in fat, a fat gram than there are in a carb, carbohydrate gram. And so, but, and then I said, but, but what if you ate three grams of carbs for every gram of fat you reduce? You'd actually have more calories. And, mm -hmm. and they said, well, yeah, I suppose that's true. <laughs> so the whole idea of restricting fat came from the idea that 
fat has more calories. Right. So that's sort of gram. like a high octane form of fuel for the body, yeah. and that yeah, but, uh, so you want you like a, a big like gas tank for. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, that's right. So sort of, sort of like a yeah, sort of like a calorie in, calorie out uh, reductive equation, you know, like a thermodynamic equation about how the body gains weight. Uh, but you know, as you well know, there was a recent study about ultra processed foods, and they said that something very strange happens when you consume these ultra processed foods. Uh, that it's not about the caloric content. It's not even about the nutrient content. There's something ineffable about those foods that subvert our metabolism, makes us fat, makes us have cardiovascular disease, renders us more inflamed. Uh, so it, you can't just say, you know, calorie for calorie, fat is the, the culprit. Right. And and then, of course, the, the unintended consequence is that the industry creates all of these low fat, but high calorie, mm-hmm. high carb foods and then you end up being hungry and and then you know study or focus groups are held to make sure that you can't just eat one lays potato chip you know (laughs) so that you co-opt the the whole reward system to make food be rewarding and then emotionally satisfying so that today you know people come to me and and they you know earnestly say you know i'm an emotional eater and i'm like well you know everybody is you know, right, we're so, hardwired they, that way. I mean, I think they just yeah, did a, a rat study where they actually uh, uh, tested rats in a maze situation where, uh, you know, it's like a typical study uh, where at the end of the maze, uh, they either got a shot of uh, cocaine uh, or they got uh, a Oreo reward. And it turns it turns out that they they actually preferentially went to the Oreo reward, and their their brains, when studied, lit up more with the Oreos. So you know we're yeah. talking about pretty high order of, uh, shall we say, uh, moral turpitude. You know, it's not just about that when people gravitate towards those foods. Oh, absolutely. And so what we got wrong, we, you know, the royal we, is that we focused on fat being the bad thing when actually fat is very, can be very nutritious if you have real foods with proteins and fats. And we all thought and we were all were taught based on rather weak science that fat was the culprit not only for obesity but also for heart disease and so and and for diabetes and so you know we're in that situation where it used to be kind of an old joke to me but now it's it's a tragedy that we blame the burger for what the bun did Mm -hmm. you know so that you it's a combination of the the carbs and the fat that make fat be a problem you know at least that's my kind of compromise view it's not the fat itself right but so okay so big critique of a lot of these studies that show that uh, people can lose scads of weight on a low-carb diet a keto diet uh is that okay fine you know you lose weight and and sometimes and they admit sometimes even your cardiovascular uh risk factors appear better you know uh Cholesterol to HDL ratios may improve. Infl- inflammatory markers may improve, but they say in the long term it's going to kill you. So how do you counter that? Because you know the duration of your studies can only be you know like a few yeah. weeks or months. Uh, how do you, how do you push back against that? I'm sure you've you've had that critique uh, in your academic career. <laughs> over and over and over for twenty years now, people have been telling me I'll drop dead tomorrow. Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, this is one of those strange things. That, you know, science at the end of the day is a human endeavor. I, I wish it was purely just science, but people have to do science, right? <laughs> There's a saying that, that science will eventually find the truth. But that's only if you have unfettered access to be able to study every every topic, mm-hmm. right? So for the long this time, there was a taboo against studying high fat diets, and so you know, 20 years ago, when someone said to me, "Well, you know, you're going to kill people," I said, "Well, you know, I, I haven't yet." Mm-hmm. In fact, the the first study, there was someone who complained to the hospital director yep. who wasn't a scientist, but they wanted to stop the study. And they, they and thought it was the equivalent really of the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiment, feeding fat oh, well, to people. Right. Oh my goodness, you know, it's unethical. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, you know, someone somewhere forever is going to say it's unethical. I mean, because you might have to kill an animal for it. And that's where you mix the politics and the, the human aspect and the science. Where I'm not talking about how you get it, you know, you know how you get the, the protein and the fat. I'm talking about protein and fat. <laughs> so um, the interesting thing is uh, now the low-carb diet has been studied more than any other diet because everyone thought it was bad and going to kill you. And so the, the, we have people who, researchers who do a study and they find that it's not bad, but because they did the study to show that it was bad, they don't study it anymore. Mm-hmm. They, uh, don't, they don't see that maybe this is an answer that will help them. So, I mean, it's just kind of sad. I mean, the, the, even, you know, the Stanford group, uh, Christopher Gardner and his group, um, uh, look at the whole range of carb intake. And, and you know, this is why in End Your Carb Confusion, I acknowledge that, yes, some people can have carbs, but other people can't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even then, the um, uh, stance of, well, you know, it's okay, but, it you know, it's going to kill you eventually, that sort of um, – Oh gosh, what did Dr. Ornish, Dean Ornish used to say? You're mortgaging your health. Mm-hmm. You know, it's fear mongering about me. All we're doing is putting you on food that people had eaten for probably, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, mm-hmm. it's thought, you know, the evolutionary kind of diet. So there is all sorts of, um, fear and, uh, and no, you can't do a study. Therefore it must be bad. And, and, but I learned very early on in the scientific, uh, uh um, training that if you come to something with equipoise meaning you really don't know if it's good or bad or bad you come you know you wouldn't study something that you knew it was bad or knew that was good you have equipoise Mm -hmm. and so i've come to this as an academic saying show me the data the data that i've seen so far has really all been good i mean there there there's been minor issues with transitioning to low-carb diets but nothing has materialized like everyone said would happen and i'm talking over a 20-year period for me personally i mean and if you if you just see that i all i did is i studied dr atkins and dr eads dr uh uh, bernstein their methods Mm -hmm. and put it into the Mm -hmm. academic scientific world um if you count their history and then going back to william banting in 1860 there actually has been 150 years of clinical use of low-carb diets and and you don't see people lining up in in body bags you know in in the er or or lining up the dialysis center i mean that's the last vestige of discrimination against a low-carb diet is that just going to get your kidneys 
And, you know, it's carefully chosen to be something that is hard to measure. It's a slow process, but nobody wants to lose their kidneys, you know. Um, It's just, um, uh, you know, actually over the last uh, uh, four years, I've learned a lot about fake news and fear mongering and all that. And it's been applied. You know, in fact, I kind of wish uh, that uh, I'm more of an incremental change person personally, but Mm -hmm. I wish the the, uh, prior administration had just kind of blown up the nutrition guideline program because because it has done no good. uh, And it's so entrenched in the the um, lobbying from uh, from um, companies that make money from the guidelines. They they just seem um, to want to triangulate the the interests of various uh, food uh, industries and not diss one or the other, you know, like not get Kellogg's too uh, angry because you're suggesting that, uh, you know, their cereal products are not healthy for people and, you know, maybe give a nod to the dairy industry and at the same time, uh, you know, appease the meat board. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's okay to eat, uh, you know, have some some soda, you know, as long as you exercise a lot, you know, just we don't want to get in the <laughs> well, way of commerce, never, do we? Right. The um, I'm told I, I in I think it's pretty reliable that um, a lot of the tactics that the tobacco industry used is being used by the food industry because many of these people just changed jobs, mm-hmm. you know, to go went from tobacco to to food and, and the marketing and the the tactics used. So so basically, there is a prominent obesity researcher, and kind of I always kind of scratch my head: why does he only talk about exercise? He only mm-hmm. talks about exercise, right. and you know he, he did a diet study, and it, yeah, it was a low low fat diet was best. But you know he really didn't do a whole lot of studying about diet, and and it finally came out years uh, later under some you know scandal mm-hmm. that he was funded by Coca Cola, which is largely a dietary sugar industry to fund exercise. Mm-hmm. To keep the focus it's, it's away. It's kind of a distractor, from, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. It's a big distractor. Well, oh goodness. Yeah. And you know the the um, uh, I, I only met with that researcher once afterwards, and he was kind of unrepentant. He said, "Well, you know, you got to get money where you get money." And, but you know, but uh, you know, that's undue influence. You know, if it yeah. was just a nickel and dime here and there, but it was like supporting the whole program. Mm-hmm. You know, for yeah, you've seen revelations I, of that. Uh, are are you yeah. discouraged at times when there are studies that uh, suggest that the uh, low carb diet is no better than uh, a low fat diet uh, that don't really even use a, a legitimate low carb diet? They may say, well, you know, it that's it was thirty percent, uh, you know, carbs. <laughs> right. Uh, and so well, that was our that was our low carb diet, and we demonstrated that the low carb diet wasn't very efficacious. I mean, I've seen some studies like that, and it's kind of like, well, yeah. you know, you tested the wrong proposition, and the study was designed to fail. Well, we know now, and those who dive into it a little bit know that the lower you go on the carbohydrate, the stronger it is. So the thirty percent carb. 30% of calories for the day is not very strong. I mean, and it would rarely lead to weight loss if you didn't restrict calories additionally. But when you, you know, when you do a study of free living people who say what they're eating, you know, that 
brings in a bunch of noise because you don't really know what they're eating. Um, and then, yeah, the, the diets we study is more like 5 to 10% carbohydrate, which is way off the scale of these mm-hmm. epidemiology mm-hmm. studies. I, I have to suspect that they throw out someone at a 5% carb thinking it's an outlier. It must be a data <laughs> data problem. And so they don't even include the people that we're talking about yeah. in those data sets. It, they, they think it's, this is inconceivable for a human to adhere to. Okay, uh, let's pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. I got lots more questions on you know the practical implementation of a low-carb diet, which you address uh, in your book, uh, End Your Carb Confusion, uh, written together with Amy Berger. Uh, who we'll interview uh, a little later because, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a very, very important subject. Uh, lots of people interested in low-carb dieting. Uh, your book uh, is uh, a guidebook on how to properly implement such a diet. Uh, we're going to talk about um, ways to do that. Uh, we're talking to uh, Dr. Eric Westman, uh, who is uh, at uh, Duke University Medical School. Uh, and a frequent collaborator with uh, Dr. Robert Atkins. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.